Hello and welcome to the Found Cause, where we have found our cause and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, but I am behind the machine, and to my left, your right is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. You know, now it's actually my left, your right. Did I always say that? I don't know. You're different now that we're in this different studio setup. So, Sebastian, I've decided. I've heard word in the three days. You've never had ice cream, icy creamy ice cream. So sweet. Don't know what that is. So. I was coming up, I was concocting a plan from the foundation of my knowledge here that you have never had ice cream. And that is, I want you to have ice cream. And I know that ice cream comes with a payment. You know, Ben and Jerry's doesn't just make this thing for free. So I thought, and here's what mm. I'm going to do. I'm going to go out into the busy street and get hit by a car. And by my death, you will receive ice cream. And it's going to be wonderful and delicious. And it will remember me always. Sounds good? Why? Why, why are you going? What? Wouldn't it be easier to just get me the ice cream from the store? Well, it comes with a cost. Yeah, you just have to pay for it. P money? That's disgusting. I don't believe in money. I would never touch money. I'm a righteous man. But I intend to go out into the street and get hit by a car to get you ice cream. Okay, well, suit yourself, Michael. <laughs> and that's <laughs> our intro if you remember from like way back when it's been a couple episodes now since we did an intro we usually have terrible intros thought of the last minute and that's one of them today's topic is penal substitutionary atonement or other theories that aren't penal substitutionary atonement if you're not familiar there are um a couple theories of the way and reason and how jesus atones for us by dying on the cross and I would say the vast, 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 vast majority of them are just plain old penal substitutionary atonement. But some wacky liberal people have thought up of a couple different ones. And there's some ancient ones from the very early church when they just didn't have their um, ducks in a row. So we will discuss all of them. But mostly this is going to be an episode defending regular old plain vanilla penal substitutionary atonement which is the foundation of the christian faith so if you gathered from that weird analogy that i was just giving there are a mm -hmm. couple theories i use the word theory loosely because they really don't amount to anything they just make a claim um, that say that jesus died to give us life everlasting but they don't want to explain how exactly that happens because they hate the concept of god's wrath there are also some other theories um, from the early medieval days that are just incomplete or strange, and they have, they take uh, strange one-off verses and run with them. So we will talk about them all in a brief second. Before I do, Sebastian, any thoughts before I jump into our different views? You might be asking, why are you using all these words that mean nothing to me? This is foundational to faith because what makes you become a Christian, this is what's really defined mm -hmm. here. What bridges the gap between humans yourself lovely audience and god over here what actually happens this is foundational to not only how do you have peace with god but also how did it happen yep so without further ado then we're going to use all the fancy words this episode but we will try to be as plain as possible because i'm a plain man and so is Sebastian, and i don't want to be that fancy first things first one of the very first um, views that's not penal substitutionary atonement, which is the normal view of how Jesus paid and died for sins, um, was called the ransom theory. And oh, it, was, yeah. it was competing with penal substitutionary atonement, the normal orthodox view of Christianity. Some will say that that's not the case and that penal substitutionary atonement was only developed during John Calvin's time in the Reformation. That's simply untrue. Um, it's the plain reading of scripture. And so from the very beginning, there were church fathers who were explaining penal substitutionary atonement. In fact, before I even get into ransom theory, 
let me just give you the basic synopsis of what penal substitutionary atonement means. I'll go through every word. Penal means punishment. Mm-hmm. So the, the punishment for sin is death. That's in scripture, right? The punishment that humanity has to pay for its sins is death. Therefore, Jesus' death um, is, a, is a response to the punishment that humans had on them. Penal substitutionary. The second word, substitutionary, means that he substituted himself in our place, in, in humans' place, those he was going to say, the elect's place. He replaced us. So he replaced mankind's sins, um, the, the punishment they had to take for their sins, he replaced them. So we are most basic people who are Christians understand this concept that Jesus died for our sins, meaning that Sebastian would have to pay for his sins. And the punishment for sin is death, not just bodily death. He will die bodily. His, his body is still in sin, but his spirit and soul would also have to die. That means go to destruction, go to hell. Um, but Jesus substituted himself in Sebastian's place. Because Sebastian is elect, we're assuming. Uh, and that Jesus okay. substitutes himself. So God being just still has to bring his wrath on the sins that Sebastian has done. Mm. But Christ takes on that wrath. And says, I will die in Sebastian's stead. So still justice is done. God is still just. He enacts the punishment that he said he would for sin. But it's on Christ instead of Sebastian. So Christ dies bodily. And then he descends into Sheol. He, of course, raises from the dead. But because he's God. But Sebastian would not be able to raise from the dead. He doesn't have the power. He would stay in Sheol forever if he was not substituted. And then penal substitutionary atonement. The last word means that he atones in this way so not only is sebastian spared the punishment but he's also made whole and brought together again with god so that he can be raised to life and uh, live in heaven forever and then of course on the earth and all the rest that comes with atonement so it's penal he pays the punishment it's substitutionary it's in the place of sebastian or any other sinner one of us mankind and then it's atonement meaning that we are made right with god and we can live with him forever so that's penal substitutionary atonement you think this would be your normal Sunday school. This is this is the gospel. That's the plain gospel. That's the gospel you teach to little kids. It's the gospel you share out in the streets. Penal, substitu- penal substitutionary atonement. Is there another way to describe why Christ died and how he reconciles us to God? Because every so-called Christian, whether they're fake Christians or true Christians, typically believe that Jesus was God, that he died for the sins of his people, that he needed to die at least, and that we will be in heaven one day because of what Jesus did. So the question is, why would you not believe what we just described as penal substitutionary atonement? We'll start with one of these. And again, it was from some early church fathers, especially in the East. And I subscribed to the fact that they really just didn't have penal substitutionary atonement widespreadly taught in the beginning. And so if you came from... Uh, if you heard the phrase that um, just as the Son of Man not, it came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, uh, life as a ransom for many, which is in Matthew, um, that the word ransom triggered some to start philosophizing about, okay, how exactly did Christ pay for sin? And so we would say in penal substitution to substitutionary atonement, if I can say that word, I'm having to get rid of this, <laughs> would say that he paid the price, the punishment for sin is death, which is also in scripture. However, some of these early church fathers said, well, he must have ransomed, because we have this word ransom here, gave his life as a ransom for many. And a ransom is something that's held to somebody, right? Usually. So if you ransom a hostage, you say, I have a hostage, you'll have to give me $5 million and then I'll give him back. So who did Christ pay with his life? to get us from and so 
the ransom theory is that Satan had humanity, right? Mm-hmm. That God gave humanity to Satan, over to Satan, and that Christ had to die to ransom humanity from Satan. And usually it's said that um, God made a deal with Satan and said that uh, Christ will die, I'll, I'll have Christ die, and you will give me the rest of humanity. And Satan said, deal, Christ needs to die, that would be great. And then there's a couple of different offshoots. Some would say that Satan didn't even know that Jesus was God. He just thought he was a righteous man on earth. And so when um, God says you can basically have the equivalent of Job, right? A very righteous man, you can kill him unjustly and have him sit in Sheol. Um, Satan said, deal, I'll give you all of humanity for this one righteous man because there's no other righteous men. And so God gives him the deal. But then, of course, psych, Satan doesn't know that Jesus is God and has the power to be risen from the dead. And so God raises Jesus from the dead, Jesus being God too, and uh, Satan is duped. So not only does he lose, he, he signed the paper in his blood, you know, he says that I'm going to give God humanity, um, but also Jesus doesn't end up in Sheol either. That's a view. Others would say that, that Satan did know that Jesus was God, but he didn't know he was going to be raised from the dead. And so he was like, oh yes, I'll have one of the members of the Trinity. And then again, gets duped because Jesus rises from the dead. Where he- is this found in scripture? Yeah, did he not get the memo from all the <laughs> messianic passages? Uh, yeah, I think Satan definitely knew that Jesus was God one. So that side of things is, is embarrassing. Um, but equally, the thing is, none of this is supported in Scripture. Nowhere does it say that mm-hmm. Satan has like like a, a deal with God to take Jesus. The only thing they have is this, just as the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This quote from Jesus. And Jesus himself Ransom can be used in a couple different ways. It's usually used for when you exchange something, but it's also just used for a payment, a punishment, right? The ransom for thieving is double the cost, right, in the law of God. It's you pay double the cost or triple or quadruple, whatever the thing is, but there's a payment for your sin. That's the ransom for being released from jail. It's your like your bail, right? So in this way, Jesus is saying, if you take it in the second meaning, he could be saying, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he could be saying to give his life as a payment for many, the bail for many. And just like we had described, penal substitutionary atonement would say that he is the bail for the punishment of sin. And the punishment of sin is death. So in this way, Jesus's words line up perfectly with penal substitutionary atonement, not the ransom theory. And considering there's no other support for ransom theory um, besides, I guess there are verses about Jesus says that um, if you're not with him, you're against him. And that he calls the, the Pharisees, their father, the devil. And so you could say that that means that humanity belongs to the enemy. Um, however, I think there's enough evidence in the Bible to show that while Satan has influence over this world, he's the prince of this earth, he's actually not the ruler of humanity, even wicked humanity. They are influenced by him, and so you could rightly mm-hmm. call them, you could rightly call him their father, i.e. like they respect him and they look up to him, but ultimately all souls belong to God. So he doesn't need to pay Satan to receive souls from him. He already owns, he already owns them, right? And that's what I would say the, the themes from the Bible definitely show that far more than than the one one-offs where Jesus says again that your father is the devil or whatever. That's That pales in comparison to all the things that say that God is sovereign and that he owns all human souls and he stits, stitches you together in, in the womb and all the rest. So we would say that not only is there no evidence for there this being this deal between Satan and God to ransom humanity, but also there's no reference to people being owned by Satan either, except that Satan has influence over them. So we would say the ransom theory is wrong. It lived 
like in the first 300, 400 years of the life of the church, pretty much exclusively in the Eastern Church. Maybe, Sebastian, you want to talk on some of the influences there? Yes, the main guy could have been who set the trend for that would have been Origen. He had many issues, whether he was a Christian or, lo- or not. I'll leave that debate. Yes. I will leave that. I'll leave that to you. That's beyond the point. But um, he was also a universalist, so you know, the guy had many problems. And in the East, this wasn't def- getting these things defined wasn't so much of an issue because they had other issues to deal with. For example, the Trinity, as I've said today, credit words do. The Orthodox Church has a very concise, direct, clear, beautiful definition of the Trinity. Your regular. Ukrainian Russian grandma probably if she has gone to church who understands what the Trinity is. Yep. So kudos to that. But in the West, in the Western Roman Empire back in those days in the early church, they had other problems to deal with. For example, the you eventually get the Council of Carthage to fight Pelagianism mm-hmm. and it's saying that anyone on your own you can climb up to God. I mean pretty much as Pelagius and his followers were getting to whether he believed that or not, whatever. But his followers were claiming that, so they had to get a concise, very direct method to define how are we saved, what actually happens. Hence, why there's a stronger en- saved, right? how there's a stronger emphasis on that. Different different times. So now I would just say to our Eastern friends, here here you go, like get on with the program. And it, even in the East, it wasn't universally um, origin followers. Origin was an influential teacher in the Eastern Church. And by East, we don't mean um, Persia, because there was also uh, religion, Christian Christianity spreading past what we think of as the Eastern Orthodox Church um, that people often forget about. They don't talk about. They're obsessed with the Roman world. But um, just know that all this time there is far Eastern churches being being planted and, and surviving with their own biblical theology in persia and india and iran or in afghanistan and other places i should have had oh my gosh i forgot i should have brought that in my book on chinese on chinese christianity there's a text there when the when i mean this is much later like in the what was it 600s when the first christian supposedly arrives to china and presents documents of what the christianity is about to the emperor part of it is i'm paraphrasing again i should have gosh i should have brought this for this where's my mind um that christ died so that we may be redeemed with God. The way it's 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 worded, he died for the foolish ones. So it does say that for sinners, people, so that the separation from God could be could, could be bridged. Mm-hmm. My point is, there's a stronger emphasis on rectifying things, a stronger sense in justification to bring us back to right standing with God. He did something for us, not just baited Satan, but he took the punishment that we deserve as sons of Adam. That's what it also says on him. Should have brought that. Whatever. I still remember. I still. I can still no, paraphrase good, look it. Look at that. And in any case, so the Far East, the, the rest of the world, um, has regular old atonement theory. It sounds like the West has regular old atonement, atonement theory, solidified by having to fight Pelagius. And then the East, which is really the Middle East, we think of as the Middle East now, but not even like the full Middle East, right? Just the sliver that's in Israel and Turkey and in Egypt and uh, and the Balkans. That area had different priorities at the time like yeah, you're yeah. saying sebastian yeah, yeah. so it was split there are there are a couple of different factions one of them was a faction that believed in the ransom theory um i don't think they were powerfully mm-hmm. against anyone and nor was anybody powerfully against the ransom theory it was just like they weren't really factions in that they were against each other it was just like uh, some it's just what you do thought right so it wasn't the exclusive belief of the eastern church either um, there were many regular old atonement theory people there 
them. So this is not to say that they were suddenly convinced that the Eastern Church was a stalwart holdout for the ransom theory, and then they were convinced over the years. They also had regular penal substitutionary atonement people in the East that um, eventually won the day because it is a superior theory to how yeah. Christ paid. Yep, movements, strange movements everywhere. So it's it was pretty mixed in the in the Christian world. You're gonna have that no matter where you go. So it's not just a quick. It's not, we're not just do you have a anyway. quote from an early father? I do, primarily from Clement of Rome, one of the most interesting people, I would say, because he writes famously the third letter to Corinthians because he couldn't get it right the first two times. Mm -hmm. And Clement, is, he lived pretty early on. He lived around the year 100. So he, we would estimate he would have spoken to the Apostle Paul early yeah. in his youth. So he gets, he gets a lot of things from Paul. We've quoted him for our stuff on predestination. Yep. There's a lot of usage of the word elect. I wonder why. Would it be because he got the letter to the Romans? Uh -huh. to the Roman church That's probably why. So now from Clement writing, because of the love that he had for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our lives. Already so much in here. Very summarized, as you can see. From, so God loved us. Jesus Christ is God. He's a cool game. That's maybe for for those that uh, we talked in we'll previous episodes. That, yep. that the belief that Jesus was just a regular man and eventually was deified pretty early on. There's people believing he's God. In accordance with God's will. Does that sound like acts to you? When talking about God predestining Pontius Pilate, mm -hmm. the Pharisees all to conspire against Jesus. This is your will, God. You desire this to happen. You desire Christ to be crucified, to die for us. Okay, there's that. And gave his blood for us, dying. And his flesh for our flesh. And his life for our lives. So there's a replacement. He is being, there's swapping. There's change being yeah. placed there. Now you could argue like maybe that that is in line with ransom theory as well, but we would say it's also in line with penal substitutionary atonement. And the West at that time was not ransom theory oriented. So again, we would say that penal substitutionary atonement has been a alive and well, normal kicking theory for mm -hmm. eons in the Christian church from the Far East, the West, uh, even the Eastern church. Um, it's been everywhere. It was never defined um, as penal substitutionary atonement until like the 1850s. So way past John Calvin too. But, um, it's the, it was the normal theory. That's why it wasn't really named. It was just the orthodox belief of how Christ atoned. And don't take just our word for it, that we just say normal, of course. It's easy for us to say, mm -hmm. we're going to go to the Bible for that. So I would say, hold on. And hold we on will, to that. yes. But I want to get through some of the other, the unorthodox use of uh, atonement. Another one, this one's like barely a degree off of penal substitutionary atonement. I think it speaks more to... Um, the doctrine becoming systematized and people actually defining it and giving words to it. Mm -hmm. This is called Christ as substitute or just simple Christ substitution theory. And as it sounds, substitutionary atonement claims that Christ still substitutes in the place of the sinner. So just like penal substitutionary atonement, just plain old substitutionary atonement says that he substitutes himself in the place of the sinner, that he takes on punishment so that the sinner does not have to. However, uh, it is minus the fact that it's actually the punishment of God that's going on Jesus. Instead, it's um, it's that God needed to be satiated somehow. And so Jesus substitutes himself and satiates God, but it's not necessarily the 
wrath of God. It's just that somebody needed to die to, to prevent somebody from living. So it's really a prevent somebody from going to hell. So it's very close to regular old penal substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. So I would call it like some weird, again, I would call it, it being systematized and it's, it's famously promoted by St. Anselm. Um, is it is it that different from penal substitutionary atonement? No, um, it just lacks the the emphasis and the fact that God's mm. wrath is being satisfied instead just says that Christ is a substitute and leaves it at that. So I would call it an incomplete version of penal substitutionary atonement. I don't think that St. Anselm or others would disagree with penal substitutionary atonement. I think it's just a weird small bit. It's a portion of the full view of what Christ did on the cross. Um, I will skip to much later in history. There's a theory that's called... Um, moral influence theory or the fact that christ was an example for us Uh, the proponents of this often call it the ethical view of how christ atoned for us and this Mm. is way later so this is into the the modern day um, when they start writing commentaries and romans from liberal theologians from the 1800s and and later on in germany they start to they i mean these these theologians start to not like the thought of god having wrath on people because they they are disregarding the Old Testament God at this point, and they're trying to say that like Babylon's not a real city, and therefore the Old Testament is really just allegory, something that happened very very early on. Oh with, my with gosh! Origin, oh yeah, Origin. Um, it's re- rearing its head like 1,800 years later. Uh, these these men, these theologians, are they don't like that that God is wrathful then, and they want to say that that God is only loving, and, and that love doesn't involve wrath, which of course is wrong but they're trying to push that. And so they're able to disregard the Old Testament because the Old Testament is old. And so they just say, nope, not real God. That was what the Jews thought about God, but it actually isn't what God was doing. Um, but in the New Testament, they have, to, they, they have to agree to it to still call themselves Christians because that's where you get Christ and all the stories is from the New Testament. And of course, that still has God's wrath if you believe in regular old penal substitutionary atonement. But if you want to also destroy God's wrath in the New Testament, you have to come up with some other way that reason that Christ is dying and way that he's atoning for us. And so again, this view is called the moral influence theory or Christ as an example theory or its proponents call it the ethical view because they say it's ethical that uh, it's not ethical really. It's not ethical for God to punish people or to have wrath. And so therefore this view that doesn't have God's wrath in it is ethical. In brief, they say that Christ was an example for us, that he came to live and die and resurrect to show humans the true nature of love and turn them back towards God. And so not only was his life and teaching showing love and truth and being a light to the world and all the rest that we agree that Jesus was Mm -hmm. an example to humans, that he was the light of the world, that he did show us things we didn't know before, that he was a teacher, that he also died simply, and this is where we would disagree, Mm -hmm. he died simply to show and be an example to Christians that they would also have to possibly die or at least be persecuted and then be close to death um to share the good news that christ was giving and that good news was that you should be nice and obey the basics of the law and that you shouldn't discriminate and whatever other liberal things you can shove into love your neighbors yourself and whatever you want to make christ into so the point of this ethical view of christ's atonement is to say that he didn't die for the sake of sin he actually died to show to show christians who in the future that they also too may have to die like he did so as an example he died for them does that sound like um 
Christ crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, may it be, but your will be done. No. I should say <laughs> yes just for the sake of controversy, but yeah, no, not it, at all. It, it, it doesn't. <laughs> so I guess in theory, God the Father could be like, no, you need to be an example of death to them. But surely there's other ways for Christ to teach humans to be good. In fact, if this is really the case, and this was really um, the reason God came, that Christ came to, to teach humans how to be good, don't you think he should have just taken over and, and ruled as king? We would say that God is delayed in his coming, not, not delayed, i.e. he's not like wanting to come but can't. He has a perfect time when he's coming, but he's allowed these 2,000 years of history post-Christ to not only make the number of his elect increase, but also to make the number of the unelect increase because his glory is shown and his justice is shown in the punishment of evildoers. So he's adding to the number of evildoers that there are so that he can be even more glorified in their destruction. And he's adding to the number of the elect so he can be even more glorified in their mercy um, and the mercy that he has on them. So, wow, you're adding to the controversy. Amazing. <laughs> right. So this ethical view is basically saying Jesus came for a dumb reason and um, and kind of failed. He died for not a very big reason. Yes. Please understand also that part of this, why these alternative views are being invented is because, and you will hear this phrase come up every once in a while from progressive or liberal theologians, liberal in the sense that they believe that part of the Bible is not real. Right. It's fake. Because you're going to see this phrase come up, cosmic child abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you hear that a lot. From I atheists mean, too. Yeah, I mean, like, like, do you have something against God's wrath maybe? Yes, clearly so. So yes. hence why there's so much struggle to come up with these alternative views because as we're going to read, we're holding you, we're holding you hostage here. Mm-hmm. We're going to demand a ransom. We'll read the Bible, but yes, yes, clearly there's an aversion to anger, wrath from God. As I've always said, you see the same wrath in the Old Testament as you see in the New Testament. Yep. So we, as I've quoted over and over before, Jesus calling the Pharisees, you fools, you blind, you blind Pharisees, or when he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, or to the seven churches in Revelation, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth mm-hmm. again. Or you have the spirit of Jezebel in you. Okay. Wrath and anger, judgment. As much love and compassion in the New Testament as in the Old Testament, I would yeah. say. To give Origin some slack, and I, I, I can't resist saying this. This modern view is a little bit crazier than what Origin would have said. Yeah. Back, in the, back in the day, they would have said um, the Bible is truly real everything is inspired by God so they wouldn't say okay that part in Genesis is like okay we can't forget about that you know the creation stuff but they would say it's like there's everything in the Bible has some metaphorical meaning to it yeah for example like when I'm making this up when Jesus says get three coins origin would say or like the Alexandrian school would say is that the Trinity in the three why Jesus is saying three coins okay yeah. They're not doubting the Bible. They're just saying there's all these hidden secret messages yeah. everywhere. Okay. And just equally, they would also say that the Old Testament wasn't necessarily true in that King David might not have actually existed. However, 
his story teaches us something true and therefore it's from a God. true story. Yes. So we disagree with that, of course. We would say that King David obviously was a real person that to hold mm-hmm. it otherwise is kind of ridiculous. However, that's not quite as liberal as the liberals who say, yeah, the Hebrews just got it wrong and King David wasn't real and what are you going to do, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have a purpose. Uh, we would also say that the thing about this whole Christ as an example theory, it, it doesn't quote a lot of scripture. It quotes scripture like this, and I'll read uh, one from it, from First uh, Peter 2. For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So they're like, look, see, Christ was an example, and he suffered for us that we should follow in his steps. We would say, yeah, and also he died Mm -hmm. for our sins. So it's not that he didn't leave us an example and suffer for us that we should follow in his footsteps, but that's not all. And to say that that is all is where the heresy comes from. So we don't disagree with Christ being an example, but we also say he died for our sins kind of the main point of christianity so to deny that is to mm-hmm. deny christianity here's this might be helpful this is how i think of it at least the example part comes in our sanctification once we have been made right with god hence why we can agree with right. these statements mm-hmm. we could even do an episode someday on sanctification how it actually works yes but this, don't get me distract, distracted so that's christ as an example it's a pretty liberal scholar one you'll hear modern liberal scholars say the same kind of thing sebastian was actually telling me before this podcast that there's a famous canadian one that he watches for some weird reason he seems clips of her some canadian woman pastor faco um that also holds to the whole christ died as an example for us and it's really just to show us how how much he loved people and that we would have to die one day whatever i mean it's kind of a nonsense just trying to get rid of the actual reason christ died and trying to not condemn people and show a meanie god because they don't like a meanie god because they're making actually a fake god but one last example that you hear from more scholarly, uh, broody theologians who are who are liberal, and I would say is equally um, evil and God-hating in their heart as the super liberal Christians. Mm-hmm. However, they're more close to traditional Christianity, and therefore they feel the need to say something different than Christ died as an example because they know that's like ridiculously liberal and dumb. They have a theory called Christ as Victor in Latin, mm. um, Christus Victor, uh, which is from like the 1930s so it's a it's a new thing and it it is almost the exact same feeling as the previous one the christ example theory in that it's right but it if it denies penal substitution atonement then it's wrong it's not all that happens so christ as victor theory says that there was uh, this dualism kind of like with the the ransom theory right there's dualism satan has the earth God has heaven, and one of them is going to have to win and battle it out. We would say that's not true. God actually owns everything. Mm-hmm. He was never, I mean, he's at war with Satan, right? But he's a dominating winner. It's kind of like the United States at war with some Native American tribe. Like there's no, <laughs> there's going to be no contest. The United States is going to win. But yeah, technically there's a war um, going on. In any case, um, he says that this this view, this crisis victory view uh, made by a Swede, so I might say, him, Gustav Aulun, Aulun, I don't know how to say his name. In any case, it's practiced by people in the U.S. too, so it's not some Swedish weird thing. Uh, They say that there's this battle between heaven and Satan, and that Christ comes to win the battle, which we agree. Christ came in and secured victory. He was already dominating. God was already dominating, but he secured victory by dying on the cross. And that's where the theory stops. They say that Christ came to win, to bring his kingdom defeat the forces of satan period that's it so they purposefully leave out the fact that christ died and paid the punishment that was due to mankind so that that's what they're still trying to avoid it just like these other theories they're trying to avoid saying that that christ paid the punishment that was due to man the wrath from god okay 
that's what it's trying to avoid so it distracts it's another red herring just like the christ is an example thing it's like oh but christ you agree that christ died and, and won over the forces of satan don't you and we would all say yes he did that by uh-huh. dying mm-hmm. for the sins of the world uh, paying the sins of his people and therefore satan can't win at the end of the day because not only is jesus going to come back and make the whole earth is and throw satan into the hell but he also won a people to himself via the cross so that's why the cross is a part of his victory and that is that he secured a people for himself then but this one just says that he did it somehow he, he some, somehow the cross wins definitely not by paying a punishment must be something else because they don't like the wrath of God being a punishment on due on people. But somehow the cross means victory. I don't know how. They don't explain how. I have to this day, I've not heard exactly how the cross is victorious if you don't hold to the penal substitutionary atonement theory. But they just proclaim Christ is victor. I don't have to care about the wrath of God because the cross is about victory. We would agree. Cross is about victory. Just as the cross is about example too. But the primary reason for the cross is the penal substitutionary atonement. And in the Christ-Victor theory, um, it's a lot like, like our analogy previously, it's a lot like saying, I'm going to die for you, and it's going to give you a gift, right? I'm going to go out into the street and get hit by a car, and it's going to give Sebastian ice cream. And then you're like, how, <laughs> how is it going to do that? Because in penal substitutionary atonement, I imagine, um, the only way to get Sebastian ice cream is to like slam into an ice cream truck like maybe ice cream is like a super rare commodity so the only way to get it is to ram my car into an ice cream truck and hope the ice cream like pops out and falls into sebastian's lap in that case i'm sacrificing myself and the driver of the ice cream truck poor guy um, to get sebastian ice cream so at least that makes sense right i go out and i get hit by this truck and the ice cream lands in sebastian's lap but if you don't explain that part then i'm just going out and getting hit by a car and somehow hoping sebastian gets ice cream like they're not connected so equally, mm-hmm. Christ dying in the Christ victory theory, when it doesn't explain his punishment, uh, the punishment of God being paid, um, just says you're somehow saved when Christ died, just like it's you're somehow, somehow Sebastian gets ice cream when I go get hit by a car. They're, the connecting piece is not there, and they refuse to accept the connecting piece. So we would say this is heresy only because it denies penal substitutionary atonement, not because saying Christ is victory is heresy, because that's not. Exactly. So it's one thing to say, yes, Christ conquered death. He defeated Satan, and also he's replaced, he substituted our, yeah. our sins on him. But then it's very different to say Christ won for us. But I refuse to believe that he took God's wrath on right. him. So you see, you see the difference. When you say, I r- refuse, I don't want to, I reject God's wrath taken upon Christ, that's when you stumble into heresy. Very important, very important distinction. And I would say, as far as like people that you know, or your neighbors, or maybe church members that... that have heard these other views and have been captured by them to some extent i would say there is a um a definitive line between somebody who's just confused like maybe some of the early church fathers and somebody who's a straight god-hating heretic and that is the hatred for the truth so it's one thing to hold the christ victory and be like oh i don't know about the whole penal substitutionary atonement thing i hold the christ as victor or it's what i've heard or the ransom theory who does that anymore or the christ as an example even one of your congregants, one of your neighbors, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ could hold one of these things. Incidentally, they've been confused. They've been captured by vain philosophy. And so they hold to these things, but they don't really hate the truth. They're just confused and they have these weird things. I'm going to allow for that. I say correct them because you want them to know the truth, but I wouldn't necessarily call them a plain old heretic. However, Mm -hmm. 
if you hear somebody saying phrases like it's divine child abuse for God to, to punish his son instead of sinners, we would say that's a direct denial of what God did. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you deny that, you deny the gospel. And I don't think you have the gospel. You're a heretic, right? So we would say that if somebody directly denies penal substitutionary atonement, knowing exactly what it is, they are a heretic. Just like I would say if somebody do, knows full well what the Trinity is and says, I don't believe in that, they are also a heretic. Even though you can have weird views of the Trinity and still be a Christian just because you don't quite understand. If you know the Trinity and what it is and you directly deny it, we would say, yeah, you're a heretic. So we've done a lot of talking, Sebastian, on exactly what we don't believe. And we had, we quoted and explained what penal substitutionary atonement is. But you'll notice that those other views really did not have a lot of scripture behind them. So does penal substitutionary atonement have a lot of scripture behind it? Yeah, yeah, actually a lot. So we're gonna we're gonna blanket you with a couple of scriptures, but they're so direct. They're so direct and so exactly many. what penal so substitutionary many. atonement is. <laughs> it's not even like we need to do a big treatise and explanation of exactly how they relate because they plainly talk about exactly what penal substitutionary atonement is. So we'll do a shotgun approach. We'll give you some scripture. It's out of context just because it's so plain the words are that you don't really need the context. However, we encourage you as always, look up the scripture. You can Google it for yourself. You can type in penal substitutionary atonement verses and get a million. So you can do your research yourself this is not quantum physics this is not like trying to piece together all the look for example when i did when i did this one my church trying to piece together all the three locations in sheol like you right. have to like dig yeah. and then like put it to get piece you know granear was saying in spanish you have to really really think get the gears going you're going to see it's not that case so you might be asking you know why are we even wasting our time you might say why are we talking about this this is simply essential what is the bible it is the spoken word of god Yes, and if as Christians, should we or should we not love God? We should love God. Okay. Wow, thank yes. you, Michael. Thank you for the cooperation here. So yes, God gave us his word to instruct us, as he said in First Timothy, in, in Timothy, yeah? and then to teach us and also to show us how to live. He, it is his truth. Therefore, if we love God, we're going to see now in a second, that he has given this to us hence therefore we should care for these for these things we shouldn't mm -hmm. take it lightly likewise when it comes to the trinity even though as i as we have said many times the word trinity doesn't appear directly you're going to see that the principle of the trinity being taught throughout scripture hence right. why it is worth going through it it is important this i would say this appears more than the trinity the, yep the purpose of god and uh, of Christ dying on the cross. So just as a preface, I just want to lay that out there. This is important because God, you can say, took the time mm -hmm. to reveal this to us. He couldn't have, like many other things he hasn't revealed to us, but he wanted to reveal this. You can see it. There's a lot of references, hence why it's important. Yeah, and it's like the concluding note of the gospel, right? Men have sinned. We all deserve death. And Jesus came and gave us victory by paying our price. So come and believe in Jesus. It's the punchline of the gospel. So if you don't have the punchline, you're walking around, you know, like a man in a canoe without a paddle, if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we'll do a couple of these verses. Again, know that they're smattering, but I think they speak directly to the issue at hand. First, Old Testament stuff. Isaiah 53, big section about the Messiah, often quoted at Christmas time, and it's coming up close to Christmas at the time of this recording. Um, so thematic, but this talks about what the Messiah would do. I'll read the whole section. Ooh. 53, 1 through 12. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. Here's the messianic part. And had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So we all agree with that. Even the heretics mostly agree with this, right? He was despised. He came. He wasn't um, beautiful. He was a normal guy, and he was considered cursed. But now here's the part that I say is just a home run and should be super convincing to anyone. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So he was wounded for our transgressions, meaning he was a substitute for our transgressions. Not only did he get in our place, but he was wounded for our transgressions, meaning our wrongdoings. He was crushed for our inequities, our evil, right? Upon him was the chastisement, the correction that brought us peace. So he was a substitute for our penalty and he atoned us. We are healed. We are atoned. So penal, substitutionary atonement right there, all within one paragraph of Isaiah. As you see, we have qualities, we have sin, we have transgressions. Something was done to Jesus over here for us. Yep. Again, something was done to him for us. Something was done to him for us. Clearly, you can see something's being substituted. It's like, wow, it's like the yep. word's right there. And equally, I mean, there's other visions in, in Genesis where Abraham has to, it's called the sacrifice Isaac, right? And then God provides a sacrifice substitute. So he substitutes for Isaac's death with a ram up on the mountain. Uh, some would say that's actually the same mountain that Jesus is then sacrificed on. So the theme is clear, even if it's not the same mountain. The theme is this is a shadow of things to come, that man would be on the line to die. So mankind is set to die, just like Isaac was set to die. And in his place is a perfect spotless lamb, in this case, Jesus, and a ram in Abraham's case. So in that case, again, the Old Testament foreshadowing what would need to be done in the New Testament. But if you don't believe us, and you don't believe in the Old Testament or whatever messed up thing you have, you don't believe that Jesus actually fulfilled what Isaiah was going to talk to him about or all the themes the Old Testament are talking about. Let's go to the New Testament to see what Paul and the other writers of the Gospels say Jesus accomplished on the throne, or on the, on the cross, and now is ascended to his throne. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took on the sin from us, is what that is saying. Substitution. Doesn't have the penal part of it, but it is definitely substitutionary, which is part of penal substitutionary atonement. And then we might become the righteousness of God. That's the atonement part. So again, it's got the substitution, it's got the atonement, just doesn't have the penalty. But of course, becoming sin is a, a penalty in and of itself. So you, I might say this is holy penal. Do you have a, a verse? I do from Hebrews, which is book of Hebrews. Excellent book. A summary of the Old Testament. Very important to understand this as a background. The, the Jews, this is my my one minute summary of the Old Testament. Entirety is sacrifice in order to appease God for your sins. That's why you have all these priests. That's why they all have funny hats and jewels mm -hmm. all over. That's why you have the Temple of Solomon, very famous. You know, if you go to Jerusalem, there's where the temple once stood. What happened there? Animals, lambs, were white lambs, were sacrificed there in order to serve as a reminder that sin demands death. That happened for a very long time. First time. You see that replacement happening 
is with Isaac and Abraham. Mm-hmm. And then when Isaac asks Abraham, where's the, where's the sacrifice, Dad? He says, God will provide the sacrifice. Yep. Pointing to God being the one who's going to give the, the ultimate sacrifice. Again, you're going to see that theme over and over and over again in, this, in the Old Testament. Hence why the Jews, during the, Jesus, during the time of Jesus, they called him not only son of David, but also the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Penal substitution? Question mark? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm like, P- Jews the, in calling him the land that takes away. Okay. Okay. We'll go on. Hebrews. Jesus denied many times. This is the background. So, he didn't just, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Puts away sin by sacrificing himself. He's a substitution. It's for the sake of sin. Therefore, he's taking out the punishment of sin. That is death. It's for our atonement. Be no substitutionary atonement. And it is bridging the gap between the New Testament mm-hmm. and the Old Testament. Hence why the Old Testament is real. Sorry, that's just an aside, but yes. 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 And to be even more short and brief, First John 2, 2 says this. He is the propitiation, the payment, for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Sebastian quote from the New Testament, they say, Hail, um, lamb, who comes away the sin, take, lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's Jesus' role. It's undeniable. It's quoted in the Gospels. It's quoted here in First John. He's propitiation, the payment for our sin. Payment meaning he pays that ransom that's quoted by the people who like ransom theory. Um, he, there's a payment that's required for sin. The payment is a punishment from God. It's a wrath given by God. And Jesus pays that by himself, of course. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, he suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so he's substituting for us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but been made alive in the spirit, i.e. punishment, so he's put to death, he's substituting for us, and he's atoned us because we now we're being brought to God. So again, penal, substitutionary atonement in one big old sentence, one verse. Mm-hmm. Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, the ransom people might quote this because it has the word ransom in it, but we would say it's payment for sin. So he's serving us. That's atonement in that way. He's atoning for us. And he is um, paying our price, which is substitutionary because he's doing it for us and it's punishment. It's a payment. And we reach this conclusion simply because it would be in harmony with everything else we just quoted in the rest of the New Testament. Right. We're not just stretching the meaning of this. Mm-hmm. And that's if you, again, read this in line, it's not out of context, but we're not giving exactly. the context here because there's too many verses. Exactly, exactly. Do you have another one? I have something but as a, to wrap things up, but... Okay, well, keep I'll, going. I'll keep, keep rolling. rolling. There's, keep there's plenty, like I said, I'm going to give you a shotgun approach. I'm not going to go through all these because there are plenty, but you can look them up on your own. You can type into Google, which is such a fantastic tool, and say, versus on penal substitutionary atonement, and decide for yourself if you want to look all their context up and the rest. But Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Important part here is it says, God made us alive together with him. So there's the atonement part. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. So there's the, the payment. Right? He's canceling the record of debt. And how did he do this? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he punished, he nailed the sin, Jesus, to the cross. And Jesus became sin. Him who knew no sin became sin. Set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's the punishment. The substitution is the setting aside of the record of debt that stood against us, with all its legal demands. And the atonement is God made us alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So that is penal, substitutionary, atonement once again in a verse. Hebrews 2.17, different part of Hebrews, says, Therefore, he's made us like his brothers. He has been made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So, again, he's been made like us. He's substituted for us. He's made a man like us so that he might propitiate for the sins of his people, that is, pay the sins of his people. So that's substitutionary because it's paying it for his people, and it's punishment because it's propitiation, and therefore it is Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Blam. And uh, we would, I mean, I can keep going on and on, right? But Romans has a ton of verses. Hebrews has verses. Honestly, the entire New Testament talks about how Jesus died for our sins. So it's not hard to find this. You'll hear that from pastors all over. It's not unique to the found cause. It's not unique to Western Christianity or even American Christianity. It is found everywhere. So it's not new. It's not unique. It is unique message from Christianity, but it's not unique to some weird cult. This is the gospel that Jesus died for the sake of his people. Yes. I don't even know if I quoted part of the letter of Timothy, and I don't mean this ancient Timothy. I mean the patriarch of the Church of the East, right? in which he's discussing with a caliph, who's a Muslim, so a Christian, having a conversation with a Muslim. And I'm pretty sure... I'm quoted on our eastern mm -hmm. journey you episode did. that he is explaining why christ had to die because muslims be believe some stranger <laughs> was died <laughs> yes it's an accident a whoopsie uh-huh yeah no 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 no. god intentionally grabbed some random and put him on that oh right yes but it's it's not um, needed it's not necessary yes so you see that in the east you see that going all the way to china with um uh, oh my gosh i'm forgetting his name right now adam yes i think it was his his Christian name was Adam when he started okay. preaching to the emperor in China. Okay, so this is not something that we're just inventing right now. This is not some concoction from the Reformation era. This is straight from the Bible. Yep. Last one I'll leave on as far as verses, but again, it could go on all day, was that um, is 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. So again, he died for their sake. He didn't die as an example for them. He died for their sake so that they could live. And so some might try to twist that and say, oh, like living equals like living well and dying equals like giving up your things or whatever else. But this is true death and true life, resurrection and saving from the grave. There's plenty of others. Isaiah 53 is a huge chapter that talks all about God crushing him, being pleased to crush him, mm -hmm. and offering for guilt. So again, we can keep going on all day. I have a lot of verses in front of me, but I would encourage you at home to go look them up yourself. It's very, very, very plain in scripture, not just from one verse, but from many verses, exactly how Jesus atoned. So for those who deny it, they really deny scripture. They deny the faith. They are lost. So do you want to close this out, Sebastian, with something? I do, yes. You might be asking, why is this then important? And here's why. This is how God chose to give us a way for us to have peace with him. 
this is the good news that someone, Jesus Christ, took the punishment that we deserve upon him and by trusting, repenting, believing in him, you no longer are separated from God. You have been now adopted into his family. You've been grafted into the family of Israel. You have been adopted to sonship, as it says in First John, from when I'm starting to in the in our Bible study at church. And this is something to be grateful for, because if you don't want Jesus, to, if you don't want to even think about God's wrath, you're a big trouble, friend, because you then are going to have to pay for your own sins, mm -hmm. and God's wrath is still on you. God says, you might be asking, why did Jesus have to die? That just seems so unnecessary. God says, in through Paul in Romans, that the punishment for sin is death. I'm like, you might not like that. This is his universe. That is how he has established his world. That if you sin, if you violate his law, you're no longer on good graces with God. Yep. You cannot be with him in paradise. Hence why you we talked about Sheol. And on that note, I think this might actually tie in perfectly with this. For one of the stories that I say was a real story about real people, the rich man of Lazarus. Yeah, a parable that is of real people. Got yes, it. so not just some fictitious mm -hmm. event, but actual humans who existed, the rich man and Lazarus. Here's what it caught my eye in a recent um, sermon that I was listening to. When the rich man is in Sheol, in the bad side of the grave, in the underworld, waiting for judgment, and Abraham is on the other good side, when they're having a conversation, the rich man then, instead of apologizing and feeling bad for himself, he actually just says, you know, Thank you, Father. Send to send to my send to my relatives. Send Lazarus to them, for I have five brothers, so they may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, the rich man, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What stood out for me is he is telling you how to not end up there. Something he is not doing. Mm. What is this? I mean, do, do you see it or, or, or should I just say it? You should say it. He says, repent. If they hear from someone, they will repent. So, I mean, which talks about total depravity right here. Right. Like, even though he's in hell, like in Sheol, like, I don't want to repent, Abraham, but send them someone. Yeah. Maybe they will repent over there. But he's telling you how to not end up separated from God. That's what really stood out to me. I was like, wow, this is pretty, this is amazing. I, didn't ne I never noticed that. But um, he is saying, repent, trust in Christ who has provided, who is the lamb, who has taken away our sins. And you will have life with God. You will be part of God's family. No matter what you have done in the past, you think Christ has not, he is imperfect that he cannot atone for that? If you repent and trust in him, you will have peace with God. That is our call for the gospel. And that's why we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. I've been Michael DeMayo behind the machine. And to my left, your right has been Sebastian the Bookkeeper. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can look them up on foundcause.pinebean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. But if you want to see our lovely faces, you can go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause or YouTube and look us up, foundcause there. We're also on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we do a response video. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Goodbye.